Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you had a great weekend, and hope you got a great week planned. I always like um, talking to Ken Samples because I always learn so much. And today is going to be no exception. Our topic today is why did the what what did the earliest Christians believe about the identity of Jesus Christ? That's our topic today. And if you know uh, Kenneth. Richard Samples, he's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, and right now he's sitting there thinking, how does he know my middle name? I'm, I'm sure that's what happened. Ken, how are you? I'm good, Bill. It's uh, You're such a wise person, you knew my middle name. <laughs> yeah, it's called the internet search. I think that's what did it for me. That works. Yeah, it does. Well, anyway, nice to have you here in June. We're looking forward to uh, spending this hour learning about what the earliest Christians believed about the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm fascinated by this. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, just a little context, you know, for for the last couple hundred years, what I would call liberal or progressive theologians and skeptics have said that, you know, the the apostles didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. Um, They even think that, you know, even these strong passages in the Gospel of John came very late but they essentially think that it took 400 years for Jesus to kind of evolve from merely being a human being to evolving into God. Hmm. Um, but these passages that we're going to talk about today, I think, refute that theory powerfully. Good. I'm excited. Let's. Let, can we start by talking about creeds? What are they and how long have they been around? Yes, that's such an important point. A a creed uh, in Latin just means I believe, Um, and there are creeds in the Bible. Um, For example, Deuteronomy 6.4, which uh, the Hebrews call the Shema, hear with the ear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's probably the most recited passage in all of the Hebrew Bible Mm -hmm. because it's recited every day. Yes, twice a day, Um, isn't it, Ken? Yes, Um, and there are also creedal statements in the New Testament. For example, probably the earliest one was just the simple, Jesus is Lord. Uh, That word Lord is Greek, kurios. Well, that's the Greek word that would translate from the Hebrew, Yahweh. So, to say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is Yahweh, to say he, he is God. So, so what's interesting here in this context is there were creedal statements even before there was a New Testament. That is, the church would meet, they'd sing hymns, they'd recite creeds, uh, and that was even before the New Testament was written. And, and scholars have discovered that there is within, particularly the writings of the apostles Peter and Paul, there are hymns and creeds and confessions that are older than the apostles' writings themselves. They go back to that very primitive period 
when uh, all Christians were were Jewish. Mm-hmm. So this is not early Christianity. This is right at the core. And uh, what's interesting is what's in these hymns and confessions and creeds, Bill, are the most exalted statements about the deity of Jesus Christ. Wow. Ken, maybe we can even go back just so we don't have anyone lost with when you said the word Shema. And for some people listening, they would go, what did he say? And yes. let's just spell it S-H-E-M-A. And, right. and Shema would be the um, the uh, the opening uh, prayer right. that they would do it, daily in the morning and in the evening. And, and in the ancient world, often statements or documents were given the title of the very first word. So in Hebrew, to hear with your ear is Shema. So so that creed was called the Shema. That's why in the New Testament uh, and in Christian creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the reason they're called creeds is that's the first Latin word, credo, I believe. Mm-hmm. All right. Ken Samples is my guest. He's a philosopher and theologian, and I'm pretty sure he's smarter than uh, your neighbor on either side of your house. Um so, Ken, we can establish right now that there were creeds before there was Scripture. Yes, that's a that's exactly right. Um, I mean, Jews met and worshipped uh, Yahweh, uh, and and the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, uh, was then translated and and created, inspired by God. And in terms of the New Testament, of course, Christians were meeting on the first mm-hmm. day of the week, right. worshiping Jesus. They sang hymns. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is believed by many biblical scholars to have been an ancient hymn. Wow. Uh, and again, it has very exalted language about Jesus's deity. But you also find uh, examples in the book of Colossians and in 1 Peter and there may be a host of others as well that, uh, and, and again, the apologetic um, emphasis here, Bill, is that whenever the Gospels were written or whenever the epistles were written, and I, I think they were written pretty early, but even if you take a late date, um, these hymns, creeds, and confessions, that's right at the beginning. Wow. When Jesus was raised from the dead and the church uh, emerged. Yeah. So can some of these primitive Jewish Christian creeds and confessions and hymns, they made their way into scripture, didn't they? That's exactly right. What is believed, uh, Bill, is this, that Peter and Paul, who were uh, right at the heart of historic Christianity, they were leaders along with uh, James and John. What they did as they uh, penned their epistles is they weaved these hymns or these creeds or confessional statements into their book. Of course, we believe they were inspired by the Spirit. But what happens is that when you look at these particular areas, they um, these creedal statements or hymns, they have a poetic or lyrical structure. And it's almost abrupt when you're reading in the Greek because it, it's like you you bump into uh, language that is different than the rest of the epistle. This has led scholars to think that uh, Peter and Paul were actually incorporating hymns, uh, creeds that they recited, 
we're told in uh, Romans 10 that, you know, confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart. This is something that would happen. The church mm. was a confessional church. Uh, that these are earliest Christianity. These are these are things that were sung and recited and confessed when the church was only Jewish. Wow, this is robustly good news to me, Ken. The fact that one of the earliest Jewish Christian creeds was Jesus is Lord. I love that. And, you know, what's very powerful here is that, uh, you know, liberal scholars, skeptical scholars have said, Jews would never believe that a man could be God, but the pagans, uh, once they became Christian, they kind of voted Jesus into deity, but it took several centuries of kind of evolution. But what we have here is, look, Bill, this is Peter and Paul. This, these are the pillars of the church. They're Hebrews. They don't go around worshiping human beings. No. Uh, they worship Yahweh alone. And the reason they came to worship the Lord Jesus Christ is because they saw him as an extension of Yahweh, which is which is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Ken, I know you've done uh, some reading on Craig uh, Bloomberg's book, Making Sense of the New Testament. I'd love to hear some of that um, discovery that, that Craig made as well. When we talk about some of the oldest passages that Paul and Peter used in their letters, um, this is predating the epistles, these, these passages, which is so fascinating to me. That's exactly right. This is uh, Craig Blomberg. He is a uh, New Testament scholar, teaches at Denver Seminary, written many books. Uh, one of his books, and this book is a, really a popular book, This this is which means that the average Christian can pick it up and make a lot of sense out of it. He has a book entitled Making, Making Sense of the New Testament, and he has a couple quotes. Uh, here's one, oldest of all our passages, now thinking creeds and confessions, uh, used by Paul and Peter in their letters that scholars have identified as most likely predating the epistles in which they appear. Now, again, what's fascinating about that, even if we adopt rather late dates, like I think the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptic because they see alike, I think they were probably written in the 50s, but some people say no. Maybe they were written in the 60s or maybe the 70s, and some would even say maybe John was written in the 80s or 90s. But even if we concede a late date, which I don't, but even if we did, what is indicated here is these these creedal statements, this hymn in Philippians 2, it emerges in the 30s, in the early 30s. Uh, that that is an incredible thing that the that the earliest Christians again who were Hebrews they believed Jesus was God. Mm, fascinating. All right, Ken. When we come back, I want to hear more about Philippians chapter two verses six to eleven, and I want to see what you're saying. I want you to illustrate exactly what uh, the researchers discovered and how it showed up in Philippians. Ken Samples is my guest. He's a philosopher and theologian. You can learn more about him at reasons.org. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. 
I'm Carmen LaBurge. If you enjoy what you're listening to here, consider subscribing to other great Faith Radio podcasts like mine. Search Mornings with Carmen LaBurge at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe. So, Ken, I'm breaking in some new bumper music. Do you feel like you're on a game show? <laughs> I like it. Oh, good. I'm glad you like it. All right. Ken Samples is my guest. We're talking about what did the earliest Christians believe about the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm finding this conversation fascinating as there were many uh, creeds and confessions and hymns that were before Scripture, and they were weaved into Scripture. So this is all very interesting. Let's uh, go ahead and look at one of the the clearest and most commonly cited examples. We get that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Would you explain that to us, Ken Samples? Yes. Um, When you look at the Philippian epistle, this is called what scholars call form criticism. And all that means is we're looking at the language. We're looking at the style of writing. And what happens is when Paul... uh, begins writing in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the language changes, the form changes. It's kind of abrupt. Uh, It's highly poetic in Greek. Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, And it's a statement of Christian doctrine. And again, it's very different than what Paul previously wrote. And of course, this is a very famous passage. It's often referred to as the hymn of Christ. Paul uh, places it here. He says, who being in very nature God, in very nature God, the the word nature is morphe, who being the the very essence of God and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord hmm. to the glory of God, the Father. Well, that is believed to be, have been a hymn which Christians would have sung or chanted or recited. And what's very powerful about it is it says that Jesus was in the form of God. It says that every knee will bow and tongue confess. Well, that's from the book of Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. And Bill, there it says, uh, the only person whom the knee will bow and the tongue will confess is Yahweh. It is it is God. And to call Jesus as Lord meant that Caesar wasn't, the pagan gods weren't. To call Jesus was Lord, to say he is Lord, is to say he is Yahweh. So this, this was apparently a, uh, a creedal statement, and uh, it may not have been something that Paul uh, wrote until he, until he met Peter and John in the early church right at the time of the resurrection, very soon after. Mm-hmm. All right, now all of a sudden, Ken, I want to take us on a rabbit trail, if you're willing to go there. And I want to go to the uh, White Throne Judgment, where I believe at that point, 
every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Is that correct? Yes. And then, even after having done that, those whose names are not written in the book of life will be departed. Yes. So you're well, not going to wonder why you're, you're having eternal separation. That's right. Now, here is a, um, I think, a very powerful point, uh, Bill. I've been talking with people who deny the deity of Christ. Like, I have Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on my door, and I have been talking with them over about 40 years. Uh, sometimes they come at very inconvenient times, and I'm not able to meet with them. But whenever they do come, I will spend time with them, sometimes inviting them in. And what's very interesting is I will often take them to particular passages. Now, there are, there are plenty of passages that present the deity of Christ. Uh, before Abraham came into being, I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, you know, I, I and the Father, we are one. But what I love to do, Bill, is to take them to these particular passages, where in the Old Testament, it says there are certain things that only are true of, and I'll use the word Jehovah for my, my JW friends. Um, I'll say, look, in the Old Testament, you know, the, the need to bow, the tongue to confess is to Jesus, is, is to Jehovah alone. But in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus. I have found th there's never a silver bullet apologetic argument with anybody. Mm -hmm. um, the Holy Spirit has to illumine a person's heart and mind. But I have found more Jehovah's Witnesses taken aback by that. Wow. It's, it is right that in the Old Testament, that's all those qualities are given to Jehovah. And in the New Testament, Peter and Paul are giving them to Jesus. Amen. Very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. And the, the other question to ask a Jehovah's Witness is, do you believe Jesus is God? Yes. They do not like that question at all. No. And yet this hymn in Philippians 2 says that he was in the form of God. He had the, the essence of, of God. Uh, Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, an incarnation, Jesus in the flesh. And then 1 Peter 3.21 and 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. To be at the right hand meant you had the authority of God. Angels, authorities, power unto him, unto him that's only true of Jehovah or of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Yet here, true of Jesus. Ken Samples is my guest. We can learn more about Ken at reasons.org. All right, let's go back to uh, Craig uh, Blumberg's book. Uh, he talked about uh, numerous texts of highly poetic Greek filled with tightly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine. This is why yeah. I don't write books, because I couldn't come up with that sentence in 100 years. <laughs> well, uh, theologians are, uh, I would say they're well paid. I'm not sure they're well paid, but they, they uh, have a lot of training to write those kind of sentences. But it's confusing. I, I have no idea what I just read. Well, I mean, I well, kind of do, but I'm just saying, let's, let's, I'm saying you did say something about three minutes ago about uh, books that are easily accessible for anyone to pick up and read. And I think that should be every book that's written when it comes well, to faith. You make a very powerful case. I know uh, C.S. Lewis said uh, that 
good communicators can take substance and make it accessible. Yes. I try to do that. But you do a good job. Well, here, here's what uh, Dr. Blomberg means, that there are numerous passages that uh, when we look at them in their in terms of their language and their linguistic form, they're lyrical. They seem like they seem like poems. It seems like a lyric, and it's different from the rest of Paul or Peter's writings. And so he is identifying this idea that these highly poetic, lyrical, uh, and differ from the, the rest of the language in the epistle, they also contain Christian doctrine. They teach us about the deity of Christ, the incarnation, uh, these kind of fundamental ideas. And he says the clearest and most commonly cited examples are, again, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, 1 Peter 3, and there may be others. Hmm. All right, let's... Um, so Philippians, again, 2.6, though he was in the form of God, that's powerful. And then in Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Boy, that standalone statement is pretty powerful, too. Imagine that. Everything, the fullness, everything that God could be uh, was found in Christ, who, who who's dwelling with us. Yeah. yeah. Ken, this is a reminder that I have to read Scripture slowly, because that those words alone are so mind-blowing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell yeah. Just stop. I mean, when I'm reading Colossians, my eyes fly through that first chapter. I wonder if I've ever really had that rock my world the way it's doing right now. Well, that's again, Craig Blomberg, highly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, some of us, some of us have, have said Jesus is Lord, but we don't, we often don't realize that that word Lord, kurios, is the Greek word that we translate Yahweh. Yeah. And for Jews to say it, Jews could not possibly call anyone Lord other than Yahweh. And yet Peter and uh, Paul were Jewish Christians living monotheistic, staunchly monotheistic. They eat, drank, and slept the Shema. They called Jesus God. They said that he was in the form of God, that mm. he had the fullness of God. Wow. All right. Ken, we're going to step aside just for a minute, but then we're going to come back and continue uh, talking to Ken Samples about what did the earliest Christians believe about the identity of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have many apologetic takeaways by the end of this hour, so you're going to be able to walk home with a few things in a brown paper bag saying, hey, this is what I learned today on the afternoon show. And if you have any questions or something you've heard that you'd like Ken to comment more on, you can send me a text, 877 2484 again 8779332484 I don't know if you've signed up for our prayer devotional email too that is a nice little uh, perk that shows up in your email box and you can start each week with a nice moment of reflection and prayer all you have to do to sign up is go to myfaithradio.com and sign up for the faith radio prayer devotional we'll be right back with Ken Samples in just a minute
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. And I hope you are having a good afternoon. Thank you for spending any time that you can with me. I always appreciate it and look forward to um, spending time with you. So we're talking today to Ken Samples, and Ken is a philosopher and theologian. You can learn more about Ken at reasons.org. Today's topic is what did the earliest Christians believe about the identity of Jesus Christ? Now, Ken, it'd be kind of nice to look at some of the the uh, beliefs that emerged from the from church from the earliest time in the history of the church, like um, Jesus' death and resurrection and, and some of these other dates like Paul's conversion. Maybe you'd give us a short history lesson on that. Yeah, very important dates become very important here. Uh, so Jesus is probably born somewhere between 4 and 2 BC. Notice it's going down uh, before Christ. He wasn't born in 1 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Uh, so the so the earliest uh, people who were coming up with dates maybe missed it by a couple years. And Jesus probably died in 30 AD, although it could be 33. Those are the two dates. Now, let's... Let's look at some of these dates. So Jesus is born 4 to 2 BC, dies probably 30, maybe 33 AD. Well, his his death, his crucifixion and resurrection, they happen right at, right at 30 AD. Now, Paul's conversion is 31 or 32. I mean, he his conversion is very soon after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul's letters his epistles, and we could say Peter as well, somewhere between 47 and 62. For example, uh, Galatians may have been the earliest epistle in which Paul wrote. Now, let's let's adopt a, a bit more liberal view. Let's say that the Synoptic Gospels aren't written till 70 or 8 or from 70 to 80. I don't believe that. I believe they were written in the 50s, but let's... let's uh, Let's accept a, a more liberal perspective, and maybe John's gospel, liberal uh, theologians think it was written 80 to 90. Now, so the New Testament isn't complete until maybe 90 to 100. Now, here's the challenge. Skeptical thinkers, liberal um, thinkers, they would say, look, that's 70 years after these events. So, you know, that's coming a long time. Maybe, uh, Maybe by that time, you have myths and legends that could have, you know, uh, got in the way of of uh, truth, but but here's the here's the point we're emphasizing today. Um, when were these hymns and creeds and confessions? What was their dating? Uh, they go back to thirty to thirty one. So these are statements that are already in a poetic form, lyrical. You could sing them, you could you could chant them, you could recite them. They taught essential Christian doctrine about Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, uh, his identity as uh, God in human flesh. The uh, he would be called the God Man, for example. So this really kind of pulls the rug out from underneath this very popular again. 
among liberal scholars and among skeptical scholars that, look, Jesus never claimed to be God. The apostles didn't believe that he was God. It was over many centuries that these ideas evolved. Now, let me just give you a couple quotes by another scholar. His name is Larry Hurtado. Larry, uh, who died just a couple years ago, unfortunately, he was an ancient historian, a New Testament scholar. And uh, notice what he says here. He says, I simply want to emphasize that the origins of the worship of Jesus, so they're worshiping Jesus, wow. as you would go, are so early that practically any evolutionary approach is rendered invalid as a historical explanation. He goes on to say this. He says, the evidence, and he means for the speed and the early nature in which the primitive church worshiped Jesus as God, is a more explosively quick phenomenon, a religious development that was more like a volcanic eruption. What he's saying there in his uh, interesting book, and it, again, it's pretty readable, the book by Larry Hurtado is entitled, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God?, He's putting in the language of the liberal there. They believe he became, he evolved uh, into God. No, Hurtado says, no, I'm, I'm a specialist in ancient Christianity and of the New Testament. And he and Blomberg and others say, uh, when did this idea that Jesus was God happen? Right away. Mm -hmm. It exploded into existence. Wow. As soon as there was a church, they were saying these things about Jesus. Wow as they should have been saying those things about Jesus. All right, Ken, you said one thing about three and a half minutes ago that I need to ask you about. You said you made a reference to liberal thinkers, and I'm thinking when it comes to dates, how can you be liberal about a date? Yeah, well, let me unpack that a little Thank bit. Thank you, because that was confusing uh, to me. Obviously, um, Traditional Christians, conservative Christians, they they believe uh, the biblical text is actually true. They believe <laughs> Good point. that that you open the pages of Scripture and you're getting history. Um, and traditional Christians, conservative Christians, we sometimes talk about conservative evangelicals. Uh, we believe in the supernatural. We believe Jesus was both God and man. We believe that he literally died on the cross, literally rose from the dead. Uh, these are reflected in our creedal statements, and we, we believe they're derived from Scripture. But over the centuries, and I would say the last three centuries especially, there have been uh, many liberal scholars in, in Europe, in America, and throughout parts of the world who said, look, you know, we're scientific people. We don't believe in miracles. Uh, we believe that, yeah, there there's some truth in Scripture, maybe maybe some morality, but you don't really believe Jesus performed miracles. You don't you don't really think that he, you know, changed water into wine or or healed lepers or raised the dead. Uh, modern people, uh, they've adopted a new theology, a progressive theology, a liberal theology. And so they believe Jesus was merely a man, and he taught uh, good morals, and uh, he talked about sacrifice. But you can't take any of these supernatural uh, or these great doctrines uh, literally. And so, you know, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, these Ivy League schools, Bill, when they were first started, they were all very conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. 
But over the last three centuries, um, that you if you go to Harvard, you you can believe anything other than the truth of Christianity. And uh, we could hmm. even say that even more about some of the great European universities. I mean, the University of, of Paris, the University of Oxford, the University of Cambridge, the University of St. Andrews, these were all Christian schools that emerged in the Middle Ages, and these are the schools that produced the firepower for the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century. But many of these schools have had fallen away and had adopted this idea that, look, um, modern people don't believe in miracles. Well, uh, I, I think that's wrong. Um, I, th I think there are many good reasons for believing in miracles, but there's a very different liberal or progressive view of Christianity as opposed to a traditional or an evangelical mm -hmm. um, or th they would use the F word. They'd call us fundamentalists. Ken, why would you assign an identity to a person when that person identifies otherwise? And Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Why would the liberals say he's just a good moral teacher or a good man? Is it just spiritual blindedness? Well, I think it is. I think that's a very significant part. I, re, uh, I mean, remember that um, one of the most diabolical parts of sin, uh, the Greek word is hamartia, Anything contrary to the character and law of God, I think, is a good definition for sin. But one of the diabolical things about sin, Bill, that Paul, the apostle, reveals in his epistle, Romans, is that sin tends to blind us. I mean, I mean, have you ever had the experience where you can, uh, you have this tendency to exaggerate the sins of others, but but minimize your own? Mm -hmm. I mean, we do that all the time, uh, and and the great the great danger is that sin can blind you. Um, sometimes people think, "Look, I don't accept Christianity uh, because I don't believe in miracles, and I'm a modern person who believes in science." When it could be very possible that there are also deeper issues. Like, I don't want to believe in God because I'd have to give up my sin. There's a moral issue. So we have, over the last few centuries, had a real battle in terms of Christian doctrine, in terms of Christian worship, Christian colleges. Notice that colleges almost always go from conservative to liberal. They almost always go from a solidly evangelical, traditional, to progressive liberal. There are sometimes changes, but what we're talking about here pulls a rug right out from underneath them because it tells us that, no, Jesus didn't evolve into deity over 400 years by pagans who, who later became Christian. No, the heart of the apostolic message was that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He is an extension of Yahweh. And it was Hebrew Christianity, it was Jewish Christianity who believed that, and they were the last possible people who would believe something like that, because they only believed you should worship God, yet they worshiped Jesus as God and man. All right, Ken. Rosie and I are just kind of sitting here thinking, wow, that is, again, a powerful moment. 
um, because if anyone were, was not going to believe that Jesus was God, it would have been them. Exactly. Hmm. All right, let me take uh, one more break. When we come back with Ken's samples, we're going to try to look at some apologetic takeaways, some of the things that we've learned from this hour that we can uh, put in our brown paper bag and walk home with them. And once we get home, we can take them out of the bag and look at them again or share them with loved ones and talk about what we learned today on Faith Radio. I hope that's what happens uh, for you. I hope you are growing in God's Word every day. I hope you are uh, discovering beauty and wonder of Jesus and uh, making that um, a part of your everyday life because this is how we grow in our faith as we do it day by day because that's what God offers us. Ken is a philosopher and theologian. You can learn more about him at reasons.org. He's author of many books and I highly recommend you checking that out. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Ken Samples. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. You can learn more about him at reasons.org. Senior research scholar. Do the junior research scholars bring you coffee? <laughs> well, uh, I they try should. to be humble like <laughs> Philippians 2, so I, I'll try to bring it to them. Oh, oh, that's beautiful, Ken. I like that. All right. Now, I know we've been talking this hour. If you just joined us, Ken Samples is my guest, and the topic today has been what did the earliest Christians believe about the identity of Jesus Christ? And it's been a fascinating hour. So if you've missed any of it, do check it out at the podcast at myfaithradio.com. But I want to have people as they're finishing their commute or getting ready for dinner, uh, some of the things that they can take away from this hour. And I know you've got some great um, end of our statements and some conclusions to this. So let's get to it. Yes, our first apologetic takeaway, number one, while the New Testament books take us back to the apostolic age, the primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns that we've been talking about that are contained in the New Testament press back to the earliest period of Jewish Christianity. Bill, I meet Christians from time to time, and they, they're kind of a little bit put off by Greek creeds and Latin creeds in the Roman church or the Anglican church or more traditional, they say, look, I want to believe what Jesus believed. Jesus was Jewish. Why, why am I getting all this Greek and Latin? Well, here's the point. That stuff that appears in Greek and Latin, it was first said by those Jewish men who followed Jesus, Peter and Paul. So these creeds, confessions, and hymns, they, they don't take us back just to early Christianity. They press it back right to right after the resurrection, where everybody in the church was initially Jewish. Mm. So this, this is such an important point to recognize that uh, I, I think the truth or falsity of Christianity rests right here. Um who was Jesus? Who did Jesus think he was? And who did his apostles 
say hmm. that he was. So that's our first takeaway. Yeah, Ken, I'll just say, I have to say, if if I was paying commissions to my guests for saying smart things on my show, I'd be writing you a check right now. Well, you are very kind just to have me on your program because you have a, you have a great program and you have lots of thoughtful listeners who respond to your uh, great programs. Well, let me, let me make a, let me make a second apologetic point. This is again, a takeaway. Okay. These, these primitive creeds. Now I'm using the word primitive to mean not just early. These aren't just the early, you know, couple, two, 300 years of early Christianity. I'm using primitive. These primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns illustrate that the earliest Christians viewed Jesus as divine and served to falsify the claim that belief in Jesus' deity went through an extended period of evolution. Hmm. It couldn't have gone through a long period of evolution when the leaders of the church uh, were reciting songs and hymns and creedal statements uh, decades before the New Testament was even completed. So to me, this is a refutation. This is a powerful refutation of what we would call liberal or uh, progressive Christianity. I think it is also strikes at the very heart of skeptical Christians, excuse me, skeptics who say, I just can't believe the New Testament even if it's written early, it contains supernatural miracles. What what this is doing is essentially saying no. Uh, the earliest, the early, right at the time of the resurrection, months uh, from that time, uh, Christians were already worshiping Jesus as God, and they weren't pagans; they were Jews, and they should have known better. That mm. that to me is such a powerful point. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, a third one was this. The earliest Christians, those staunch Jewish monotheists, remember, they're, they're reciting the Shema. That's right. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We don't worship many gods. The pagans do. We do not. Right. That's a, such an important point. The earliest Christians, those staunch Jewish monotheists, nevertheless, almost immediately, uh, what does... Uh, Hurtado say it was like a volcanic eruption. Uh, nevertheless, almost immediately they worship Jesus as an extension of Yahweh. I, I think this is a direct frontal uh, critique of liberal progressive Christianity or so-called progressive Christianity. In my view, it's the progressive and liberal are no longer Christian, but it's also a critique of very skeptical people. And again, I don't want you just to take this from me. I want encourage your listeners to go to Larry Hurtado, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? And I, I want your listeners to go back to Craig Blomberg, uh, who has a book entitled Making Sense of the New Testament. Now, in my book, God Among Sages, I summarize all this. I have a section where I go through these points and quote these scholars and develop that. And the subtitle of my book, uh, God Among Sages, is Why Jesus is Not Just Another Religious Leader. Mm -hmm. And Ken, I think one of the points you've made is how important it is for many people listening today to realize that some of these creeds or confessions or certain hymns, 
they really do go, go back to the earliest period of, Christ, of Jewish Christianity. So instead of wanting something more contemporary, we should be uh, enjoying and honoring these these creeds, these primitive creeds and confessions that date back to the earliest time. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Christians take, Christians attend different uh, theological traditions or denominations. You know, we have some that are very traditional in their liturgy. They recite formal creeds. There are other churches, non-denominational. They sing, you know, modern songs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, what we see in church history, uh, these ideas of Jesus being Lord, uh, these ideas of having these confessional statements, they didn't appear out of thin air. They're rooted in Scripture. Yeah. They're, in fact, rooted even before Scripture was Scripture. Yeah, and and not to be afraid of them. I think that was my point. Yeah, absolutely. That we have a, you know, we have a lot to learn. Of course, there can be people who know the Latin and know the Greek, and they just recite creeds because they were taught to do that as kids, and they've grown up, and maybe their maybe their heart is not as committed. But that doesn't mean the content isn't true. And this, I just think that when I discovered this, it just gave me such confidence in God's word. It gave me confidence in my faith. It made me confident that uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he's the savior of all of us who Mm -hmm. believe in him. Mm -hmm. And Ken, I love that some of these beliefs that emerged early in the history of the church that's when they started. They didn't come through some advanced stage of evolution of the Christian doctrine. This they were there right from the beginning. I think that's Boy, important that's too. A, such a powerful point that you know again the belief that no, it took hundreds of years and nobody nobody believed Jesus was God. You know, early on, it happened over a long period of time, and the church voted and all of these. No. <laughs> um, it happened immediately. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that that's fantastic. So, uh, Ken, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, this has been a fascinating study, and I, I, I really particularly loved some of the things we discovered in, in Philippians uh, 2 and Colossians 1 and 1 Peter 3. Those were kind of... Uh, mic dropping moments uh, and they're passages I've read before but when we we get them alone and isolate them I start to go pretty powerful like in Philippians 2 6 though he was in the form of God Colossians 1 19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell I'm gonna chew on that one for a while and 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 again I think what is so mind-boggling here is the most exalted statements about Jesus's identity. So the high exalted, he's Yahweh. He has the authority of Yahweh. He does the things that only Yahweh can do. They don't happen after a long period of time. They explode as the church explodes. Mm-hmm. And I love this First Peter 3, 21 and 22, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Yeah, wow. That's the Savior I'm following. Amen. <laughs> you too? 
Amen. I yeah. mean, th this, it, it, it's important that Christians know what we believe. It is also, it's also important to have people who spent years in scholarship. I mean, I'm the beneficiary of some of these people I'm quoting. I'm reading their books. I'm studying uh, along with them. But there is a very important place in the role of a church of having uh, a scholarly person, a pastor, somebody who can help us learn. Uh, you know, the church is always more than a school, but it should never be less than a school, a place where we, we learn why we believe what we believe. Mm -hmm. So, Ken, I'm so glad that you pointed out to me that your book, God Among Sages, uh, has uh, a chapter or two that was summarizing uh, the work of all these other people that you've discussed and, and given credit to. So thank you for, for that. Uh, the book is uh, called God Among Sages, Why Jesus is Just Not Another Religious Leader. Um, Ken Samples is my author and been my guest for the hour. Ken, thank you so much for spending time with my audience today. It's been a delight once again. I always look forward to it, Bill. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Ken Samples, again, has been my guest. If you're interested in learning more, you can head over to Amazon.com and check out uh, God Among Sages, Why Jesus is Not Just Another Religious Leader. I bet you can do a look inside or download the first chapter and give it a look. That is our show for the day. Thank you for spending time with me today. It's really been uh, great. Patrick uh, was great to come on the show. And the Monday afternoon mix with David Miles and Rosie and then Ken Samples. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.